This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hey everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast. Uh, I wanted to record this quick message letting people know that I'm going to be away for roughly a month to two months tops doing promotion for my brand new book, Everything Mind, which is coming out October 1st and published by Sounds True. And thank you, Sounds True, for that. Uh, But in my absence, I want to run some older interviews that I did in 2014, the, these are a series of what I was calling uh, Indie Spiritualist Skype sessions that I was doing on my website, theindiespiritualist.com. These are a series of video interviews that I had done, uh, which I have transferred into audio format. So apologies that the quality is not exactly up to par. However, it's definitely listenable, and the people I have as guests, I think, are worthy of your time. I hope, at least after you listen to them, that you feel they are. So anyways, I just want to say a quick hello, and again, my apologies for my absence over the next month to two months, um, but in that time, I sincerely hope you enjoy these interviews. Thank you very much. This is Chris Grasso on behalf of the IndieSpiritualist.com, and I am super thrilled to have my guest today, Matthew Fox, with us. Matthew is the author of over 30 books, a preeminent scholar and popularizer of Western mysticism. He became an Episcopal priest after being expelled from the Catholic Church by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI. You can visit him at matthewfox.org. Matthew, you sound like a rebel after my own heart. Thank you for being with me today. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Chris. Good to be with you. Thanks. So we're going to be talking mostly about your new book today, but which is titled Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times, a book that I've read and I am a huge fan of. But before we jumped into that, I wanted to quickly start by reading uh, actually something that's on the back jacket of one of your older books that I love, Meditations with Meister Eckhart. And I'm just going to quickly read that for our viewers. It's a quick paragraph, and and uh, we'll start from there and, and let this take us where it will. It reads, While Hindus and Buddhists claim Eckhart as one of their own, while psychologists like Jung and Marxists like Bloch and Fromm learn from him, many, many Christians hardly know the name. 
much less the spiritual tradition he represents so beautifully. So Matthew, my question to you to get things started is, for the benefit of those that don't know, who was Meister Eckhart, and what is this spiritual tradition that he represents? Well, Eckhart lived from 1260 to 1329, so he was late 13th, early 14th century. He was 13 years old when Rumi died, and Hafiz uh, was a contemporary of Eckhart. Uh, Eckhart was 17 when Thomas Aquinas died. So, and uh, he was 20 when Mechthilde Magdeburg died. So there was this thing happening. It was in the air. Maybe it was in the water. <laughs> Not unlike today, when you had some of these great mystics walking the earth at the same time. Yeah. And um, really saying very similar things. Uh, because mystics around the world tend to say similar things and even use similar uh, symbols. For example, one symbol important to Eckhart was spark of the soul. Mm. He talks about how the spark of your soul never goes out. It's immortal. It's the Holy Spirit at work, or it's the, the manger where the Christ is born. And he goes on, he plays with it. But he also tells us he got that image, spark of the soul, from Avicenna, a Muslim philosopher who lived 200 years before him. And Rumi has marvelous poems about the spark of the soul. He says, the, the spark of the heart is not easily lit. And it'll burn down your house and all this. So he goes on too about Spark of the Soul. So anyway, Eckhart was a great mystic, um, a member of the Dominican Order, which I was also a member of for 34 years until the Pope gave me my pink slip. Uh, and Thomas Aquinas uh, was also a Dominican. And um, the Dominicans were, um, they had an intellectual life. They were a big part of the university movement that was launched in the in the early 13th century, if you will. And um, but they were also mystics. They were supposed to be contemplative as well and activists. They were like Franciscans. Francis and Dominic were were peers and contemporaries. Uh, they reacted against the monastic privileges. Uh, of the feudal establishment that had been running for many, many centuries in the West. And they felt the, mon the monks had become too fat, too lazy, uh, and too much out in the countryside because the young people were moving, flooding the towns and turning them into cities overnight. And um, they didn't really have anyone to really, because education and uh, worship was centered in the, feudal countryside with the monks, uh, this new generation wanted, you know, some attention. And uh, so Dominic, to his credit, you know, sent his, his men into the order, uh, into the universities all over Europe, which were new inventions, again, from Islam, by the way, yeah. uh, it came through Islam. And um, so it was, it was a time of great... Um, creativity and great, uh, uh, by the time, I mean the early 13th century, when Eckhart came along, things were running out of steam, and um, the academia was becoming corrupt, and so was religion again. So Eckhart is a, is a, a rebel. He's trying to reform. For example, he aligned himself with the women's movement of his day, which were called the Beguines. Mm -hmm. 
And the Pope was so threatened by the Beguines that he condemned them 17 different times, which is really kind of funny. I mean, could have condemned something you think once would be enough, but out damn spot, out damn spot. You know, it wasn't working. Uh, when that Pope died, he was the same Pope who condemned Eckhart a week after he died, by the way, John the 22nd. When he died, there, there were probably a million Beguines all over Europe, so his condemnations didn't go very far. But the Beguines were a, a women's movement, they were women who did not want to get married and, and did not want to be nuns living in a cloistered convent. They wanted to live in the world, work with young people, with uh, the sick, with the poor. And they were artisans. They were earned their living often with um, weaving and sewing and making stained glass windows and things. And uh, Eckhart strongly supported them, and they supported him. And he picked up a lot of this feminist language, and he had a lot of it. For example, he said, what does God do all day long? God lies on a maternity bed giving birth. So the whole theme of birthing, creativity, which is very much a feminist theme, was very important to him. Yeah. So um, he also allied with the, the peasants. In Eckhart's day, he was German. And in Eckhart's day, there was no real German language as there is today. There was just dialects, which are uh, uh, different with each peasant group. Eckhart was the first intellectual to preach in German. So he kind of gathered these dialects of the poor and and made uh, made uh, theology out of it in the best sense, a living theology through the art of preaching. And remember, at that time, preaching was the only show in town. There was no iPad and there was no TV and radio and um, or film. But... Uh, yeah, Eckhart was was amazing because he was such a profound mystic, and um, and he he was an activist as well. We would say today because he worked with the poor and the peasants. We discovered the transcripts of his trial in the nineteenth century in Nicholas of Cusa's library. Nicholas of Cusa, Cusa is on the Rhine River also. Uh, he was a scientist and mathematician and a mystic. And David Bohm, the late physicist, says I owe more to Cusa. Then I do to Einstein, which is quite a stunning statement from a 20th century physicist's mouth. But we found the transcripts of Eckhart's trial in Cusa's library in the 19th century, and in it there's this passage where his inquisitors say to him, Why are you preaching to the poor people in their own language, telling them that there are other Christs, that um, they're sons and daughters of God, and that... Uh, they, they have to give birth to the Christ every day, just like Mary did. <clears throat> You're confusing them, they said. They're confusing them. Preaching Latin would let you go. Did Eckhart say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll go back into Latin. You know, so only the intelligentsia can understand me. He said this. He said, <clears throat> the poor need to learn. For if they do not, they will never know how to live or why to die. And 10 years after he spoke those statements at his trial, the peasant wars broke out in Germany. Tens of thousands of peasants were, were slaughtered. It was a class war. Eckhart saw this coming. And instead of living a comfortable life, uh, he tried to do something about it. And his main strategy was to build up the strength of the peasants by telling them the truth, that they're other Christ, and that they have <coughs> dignity and the powers of empowerment for responsibility to uh, for justice and uh, and for their own uh, survival. So Eckhart is a major figure. Now, he was condemned a week after he died by Pope John the 22nd. 
And um, but it was a political condemnation, like most of them are. And uh, but because of that, his work went underground, and it it really didn't. It came up in little bits here and there, but it came up mostly, I think, in George Fox, the Quaker, the Quaker um, rebel of the 17th century, who who combined contemplation and action. That's what Eckhart was doing, and unfortunately, that movement got sat on by the mainstream <clears throat> religious authorities, and I, it took centuries, I think, to come back, and it came back, especially in the form of George Fox, I think. Mm. First time I ever lectured on Eckhart, wow, was 35 years ago in Chicago at a, at a Quaker center. When I finished, this woman who ran the center, big, strong, when she bellowed from the back of the room, my God, she says, that sounds exactly like George Fox. Well, yeah, she she woke me up to that connection. That uh, if Eckhart had not been condemned, I doubt that there would have been a Reformation. Mm. I think it would have been a far more profound and radical shift in Christian awareness. But <clears throat> let me new book it shows Eckhart is stunning for our time because he's so ecumenical. Uh, Buddhists call him a Buddhist, and Sufis call him a Sufi, and Hindus call him a Hindu. Whoa, there's no one on earth that gets that kind of uh, uh, accolades. So what's going on here? There's a depth to Eckhart that is also a breadth. Because once you go deep enough into your own soul, you go down to the truths of Buddhism. Insofar as they are archetypal and universal. You you touch the booze of truths of Hinduism and uh, Sufism and also... um, um, Shamanism. I have a chapter on Eckhart and shamanism too in this new book. So, I think we couldn't understand him till today. Your generation can though, because he is so interspiritual. He is so uh, interfaith, and um, I think that's why he's uh, he's really important figure today. That's great because I was actually going to add. That was my next question: is why you know is he important to us today? So thank you for already touching that. Um, <laughs> And you, you actually, another question I was going to ask you in a few minutes, but we'll just jump into this and go back to something else I had. Um, you mentioned the interfaith, you know, and I know that you write that he was a champion of interfaith, which is something that's obviously becoming more and more popular these days. So if you wouldn't mind elaborating a bit more on that, that would be awesome. Well, um, I put him in, in the room with Thich Nhat Hanh in my chapter on Buddhism, um, because I really respect Thich Nhat Hanh, and I wanted to um, see them interact, so to speak. Mm. And um, it's so telling how much they <clears throat> they share in common. For example, Thich Nhat Hanh loves the phrase, uh, God is the ground of being. Yeah. And he attributes that to Paul Tillich, the 20th century German Protestant uh, theologian. But Tillich got it directly from Eckhart. Uh, Tillich was German, and he knew Eckhart very well. So really, Thich doesn't know this, that really uh, Tillich is standing on the shoulders of Meister Eckhart. So I hope Thich gets my book and, and learns this, because <laughs> because uh, uh, Eckhart and Thich have so much in common. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, like, like most Buddhists, liked the apophatic divinity. The apophatic divinity is uh, very well developed in Eckhart. And what does it mean? Well, it's two words in Greek, no, a, and phatic, no light, no light. You know, phatic, the word photography, all that comes from that same Greek word. Now, 
um, Eckhart says, God is super essential darkness, who has no name and will never be given a name. So the epithet divinity is about the mystery side of divinity. Um, and Eckhart is really big on that. He talks a lot about the Godhead, and the Godhead, too, uh, for Eckhart, is, is not about the God of creation or the God of light or the God of liberation or salvation, but the Godhead is about uh, not history but mystery, not action but non-action or being. And the point is to have a balance. And the West has not had a balance for centuries. When people think, hear the word God, they think, oh, creation or redemption or salvation or something. But uh, we've left out that contemplative dimension to the Godhead, which, by the way, in Eckhart's two languages, German and Latin, is feminine. Uh, so that's part of it, too. A patriarchal culture leaves out the being side of things mm. and the contemplative side of things. And this is one reason Buddhism is so attractive to Westerners today, because Buddhism has that uh, dimension of the Godhead uh, much more um, richly developed at this time. <clears throat> so um, that is another thing that, that Eckhart and Thich Nhat Hanh have in common. And Thich Nhat Hanh even says, when Christianity recovers this epiphatic tradition, <clears throat> then its real treasure will come forward again. Well, Eckhart is the leader in the epiphatic tradition, so he has a lot to say there. And let me add this too, again, in, in light of your generation. What we're learning from science about the universe, and we're hearing that 97% of all matter and energy in the universe is dark matter and dark energy. Now, no one knows what that really means <laughs> yet. Science is stumbling in the dark about it. But the point is that uh, why wouldn't then? Why wouldn't we then want a, a spirituality, too, that is, is at home in the dark right. as well as in the light? Yeah. And Eckhart is. He says the ground of the soul is dark. And when you think of it, the depths of everything are dark, mm. of the cosmos. You know, this is what turned astronauts and cosmonauts into mystics was they're going up into space right. and realizing the deep silence. And the deep darkness. And that's what made the glowing earth such a, a gem amidst the black sky. This is why so many of these ex-jet fighter pilots came back to earth as mystics. And court went a little crazy because NASA didn't have a spiritual director on their on their faculty. And um, uh, so they, a lot of them didn't know what to do with this conversion experience they had had. Uh, I once figured out what it cost to convert one of these astronauts into a mystic. It cost about $42 million a piece. You know, there's got to be a cheaper way to bring the mysticism alive in them than that. You know? Sure, sure. Hmm. Well, I love that you, uh, you, you're you starting, actually, because I, I also wanted to ask you about your chapter with um, with science. You know, you, you talk a bit about Teilhard de Chardin and Thomas Berry and... Um, you know, actually, before we get to that, I, there was a quote that was relevant to what you're just saying that I, I would love to share uh, with our viewers from your, your chapter with Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, but it's a quote from Eckhart in which he says, it's a part of his quote, in which he says, love God as God is, a not God, not mind, not person, not image, even more as he is pure, clear one, separate from all two-ness. You know, and, and I love that. And I know a lot of my viewers are, are Buddhist and I have a deep found connection with Buddhism as well. And, and when I read that, you know, it immediately brought me back to the Dharmakaya, you know, and, and Godhead, you know, it's, it's one and the same. And I thought that was truly beautiful. Um, well, I couldn't agree more. You, you really 
really landed on the right quote. I mean, that's pure Buddhism. Yeah. Now, where did Eckhart get it? He never met a Buddhist in his life. He, sure. he never read a, a Buddhist book in his life. Sure. He got it, surprisingly, from his own journey, yeah. into his own soul, and his own lineage as a Christian. So what this shows, first of all, it's a compliment to Buddhism, that Buddhism has has discovered universal archetypal truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're not kind of... Uh, trademarked <laughs> Buddhism. This is human nature they're talking about. Yeah. And uh, but you 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 really nailed it. That whole section, and there's more in that paragraph right. than just those line, uh, sentences, it is so Buddhist that it takes your hat your head off almost. You're like, what is this? A 14th century Christian preacher? Right. Um, but that's what's so exciting. You know, uh, Dr. Suzuki, the great Japanese Buddhist philosopher, back in nineteen fifty-nine had a dialogue with Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk. And at the end, Suzuki said, Tom, you're a typical Western dualist. The only outside chance you have of getting Buddhism is to study the one Zen thinker of the West, Meister Eckhart. And Merton said, well, he's been condemned by the church. Suzuki said, well, I can't help that, can I? So Merton thought it over. The next year, 1960, he spent the whole year doing two things, reading Zen poetry and Eckhart. Yeah. And it totally shifted him. The Merton of the 60s is totally different from the Merton of the 50s. And he died in 1968 in a trip to Asia. And he was writing in his notebook, Eckhart is my lifeboat, Eckhart is my lifeboat. So it's a powerful story about um, that Buddhist side to Eckhart's soul. And for people who have gone from West to East to study Buddhism, I'm sure it's it's a beautiful awakening to know. Hey, there's some of this in our own lineage as well. Yeah. So that's the joy, I think, and the excitement of the time in which we live, the time in which your generation is coming, coming into its own. Yeah. That uh, we're living in a unique moment of interspiritual uh, rubbing of elbows, yeah. and um, this holds a lot of hope, I think, for our species and. Uh, Let's face it, we need all the hope we can get today. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, it's a very just inspiring time to be alive, a frightening time uh, on uh-huh. the other hand as well, but very inspiring. Um, and so, as I started to note before, you also talk about the relationship with science in your book, and that's something that's becoming increasingly exciting. You know, with every day that passes, it's like, new things are popping up and, and correlations are being made. So I would love if, if you could elaborate a bit more on your chapter, um, you know, again, that, that speaks to Terre de Chardin and Thomas Berry and the relation of science and spirituality. Yes. Um, Meister Eckhart, like any pre-modern thinker, including, of course, indigenous people everywhere, um, didn't look on the world psychologically so much as cosmologically. They wanted to know about how we relate to the universe. Now, um, we lost this in the modern era because the modern era was so anthropocentric, it was all about us, it was so narcissistic. Mm. And, um, uh, for example, Descartes saying, truth is clear and distinct ideas, or I think, therefore I am. You know, where's the we in that? Where's community? In contrast, my friend uh, Eddie Kneebone, who was an Aboriginal teacher from Australia, in Australia, he used to say, tell me, he told the story how they teach their children that the stars 
are not just stars so many light waves away, light years away, but are campfires of the ancestors. He says the ancestors up there in the sky with their campfires at the stars are looking down on earth to see what's cooking, you see. So in other words, that ancient tradition, and it's probably the oldest tribe on the planet, the aboriginals, for tens of thousands of years, they've taught their young people there's a relationship between us and the stars. That's very important in terms of meaning, yeah. in terms of feeling at home in the universe and not feeling lonely in the universe. Right. So this attitude is, is also Eckhart's because um, cosmology is very important to your medieval awareness. Um, Thomas Aquinas, who came right before him and was also a Dominican, said that every human soul is Kapax University capable of the universe. Now today that the machine universe of the modern era has been um, dismissed and we're getting pictures from Hubble Telescope and whatnot of the life, death, and rebirth of galaxies and supernovas and stars. Uh, the sky is alive again for us. And uh, Father Sky is alive. And uh, that has tremendous implications for a healthy masculinity and for... Um, a healthy placing of our uh, planet and our history as humans into the context of the drama of the universe itself. So the new creation story we're getting from science, uh, and it's so full of awe, wonder, and radical amazement that it can trigger in the heart of human beings, no matter what particular ethnicity or tribe or religion we come from, it can trigger a, a, a common sense of reverence again and um, and even humility uh, that each of us has come 13.8 billion years to be here. Wow. And what about all those who aren't here? I mean, it's kind of special to be here and unique. And to know, I mean, we just took a picture from the edge of the solar system, as you know, uh, from a satellite we sent out 12 years ago, looking back on on its journey, and what you see are a lot of uh, small lights uh, in the in the in space, and an arrow where they're trying to say, "And this one speck of light is Earth." Right. That's that is such an amazing icon yeah. for our time. I mean, if we really meditated on that one speck of of uh, that dot, that holy dot that is Earth. Would we continue to spend $56,000 a second on weapons, which is what we're doing as a species? You know, how crazy can we be with these wars and, um, and racism and sexism and everything else that's destroying us and destroying the planet? Uh, let's put it in context. You know, our home is fragile and, uh, and it's special. And who's going to save it if not us? Yeah, so I think all this has to do with science today. I think science is not an obstacle to healthy uh, spirituality. In fact, it's an ally. Again, Aquinas said that a mistake about creation results in a mistake about God. We turn that around. An insight about creation results in insight about divinity. So we should be hungry for what science has to teach us and, and bring that into to our belief systems. And we'll all be healthier for it. Yeah, so beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on with you is 
the the new vision of Christianity that that your book and and your work and the work of others like Andrew Harvey and and you know just great teachers of our time are kind of bringing uh, about. There's still a lot of dogma attached to Christianity and Catholicism. You know, it, it's deeply rooted, and a lot of people still have issues with words like God or Christ. Um, but I, that's why I'm I'm just so in in uh, I'm having trouble even finding the word. I just really respect the work that you guys are doing in helping to change that. So. Could you talk a little bit about this kind of new vision of Christianity that's, or maybe it's the old vision, you know, from the mystics, it's reemerging. What, what's your experience of it? Well, again, um, that discussion we had on the apathetic divinity, I think is very important. Yeah. My striker says, I pray God to rid me of God. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of young people are saying that today, have that prayer in their hearts because the word God has been overused. We've stamped it on our coins and dollar bills and MX missiles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, uh, that shrinks, <laughs> to put it mildly, the, the, the meaning of God is reductionism. And that's why the the apophatic side, that we did, don't know who God is, and we'll never know who God is. God is beyond all words. Uh, is It's very important to bring that back as a, as a substratum of anything we claim to know about divinity. But um, I have a lot of fun, actually, uh, coming up with new uh, images for divinity. I mean, I, I see divinity as the being within being and the light within light, the love within love, the beauty within beauty, the um, justice within justice, uh, compassion within compassion, the silence within silence. You see, there's no limit to names for God. Uh, the Vedas say that God has a million names and a million faces. But Thomas Aquinas in the West was even more radical. He said this, he said, every being is a name for God. Mm. And then he, he goes through a whole list from the Bible, stone, rock, dew, sun, uh, wind. He goes through this whole list, and then he says, every being is a name for God, and no being is a name for God. Right. So, but I mean, that just opens your imagination or opens the door. So the idea that, that God is restricted to the name God or Allah or Yahweh um, one thing I learned from Native people, praying with Native people, I mean, they have names like Wankantanka and Tagashala and, and and grandfather and grandmother. And um, so I think this is part of growing up, is is feeding our imaginations and our language about divinity. It's also the work of the poets mm. to come up with language that's fresh but, but authentic. And... Um, Again, Eckhart is, and of course, the whole idea of God is as feminine, the divine mother, and so forth. Very important to bring that in to balance the the excessive gender uh, co-optation by patriarchy. Um, God is child. Eckhart says God is nuvisimus, the newest thing in the universe. Wow, that's not the old man with a beard is it right. it's another image entirely so but he also warns us he says every name we have for god comes from an understanding of ourselves so if we limit our names to say the patriarchal god to an all-male god that says a lot about our souls sure. and um 
So I think it's a great moment when we can break through and give birth to new images of, of uh, divinity, of wisdom. Uh, Eric Yanch, the great physicist, now deceased, says that uh, God is the mind of the universe. And by mind of the universe, he says, I mean the the interdependent uh, uh, wisdom of our ecosystems and all these other systems that interact with one another and so forth. I mean, he's quite he's quite explicit about what he means there. Um, so, what can I say? I, I think it's the time to opening our hearts and minds and and coming up and calling on the poets, the poet, and all of us to give birth to new to do images and experiences of the divine. Mm. I, I, I love that. And I, I also love how in your work, you know, you, you talk about God and all things and all things in God. You know, it's all, all you know, pen, is it panentheism, I believe. It's panentheism, right. yes. Yeah, um, I think that's Theism right. will not do. Theism says we're here, God's there in the sky someplace, we have to pull God down through our purse. That's anti-mystical. Mm. And um, it's dualistic. Panentheism says everything is in God and God is in everything, just like a fish is in the water and the water is in the fish. And uh, that's mysticism. Because people have breakthroughs. They have moments of awareness. Um, Sometimes you prepare, maybe through meditation or devotions or prayers, but often these just hit you. You may be out in the woods. You may be making love. You may be painting a picture. You may be hearing music. Uh, maybe just walking, walking the street, um, and and you're hit by this intuition that all things are connected, all things are one, and that's the mystical experience, the unitive experience, and that's that's not a small thing in your life. That that has to become kind of the restart of our our way of seeing the world, and it changes everything from politics to economics to, to religion and self awareness and. Uh, this is what the mystics talk about, and we've all got this this mystic, this lover within us. Mm-hmm. And we have to give it more attention than our culture has told us to give it, and more attention than most of our churches and synagogues have been talking about for centuries. Um, this is why someone like Eckhart is so important to uh, kind of restart our our mystical brains again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was Einstein himself who said we've been given two gifts, the sacred gift of intuition, and I consider intuition to be another word for our right brain or our mystical brain, and the gift of rationality, he said. He said rationality must serve intuition, but we live in a culture, he said, a society where we have forgotten the sacred gift and we honor rationality by itself. And the reason he says intuition is so important, he says, this is where values come from. Values don't come from the intellect, he says. They, intellect gives you methods. It doesn't give you values. Values come from intuition and feeling, he says, which are the same thing, he says. Now, I love quoting this because no one can, can accuse Einstein of being anti-intellectual. Sure. <laughs> but he's putting intellect in its place. It should be balanced with intuition, and even it should serve intuition. And we're no way, nowhere near doing that. Look at our educational systems. Did you have a class on intuition when, when in any of your many years of education? Definitely not. Well, there you go. Yeah. And yet, that's where values come from. So, hey, we're not training our young in terms of intuition. We're not training them values, which is another way of saying when they get out of school, they will 
lives the values of the culture and probably uncritically. Yeah. And what if the values of the culture are pathological? What if they what if they lead to the end of the planet as we know it? Mm. To the global warming, to the destruction of species that's actually happening today at untold rates. Sure. And and goes on and on. It's crazy. Yeah. So I, I love the fact that Einstein named um the the issue is really a, it's an educational issue. Yeah. Are we honoring the right brain? And how can we? How do you teach mysticism? Well, I did that for over 30 years. I developed uh, educational programs, pedagogy, that work. And the key is art. Art, what we call art is meditation. Uh, not art to produce a product to sell in a capitalist market, but art as process. The process of interacting with clay or dance or music or poetry or gardening or repairing a car engine. Um, to realize that the process, the way, is the goal, or the crisis. What do we say? The crisis, the way. You know, the the process itself is um, is what brings those sparks of the soul alive. Yeah, it's so refreshing to hear that. You know, in my in my first book, I, I write quite a bit about that. You know, we find it oh. in all times, in all places. We're riding a skateboard at a concert. It can be experienced and cultivated. At all times, it's always there, anyways. So exactly, um, yeah, it's so refreshing to hear you say. What's that. the name of your book? Uh, my first book, Indie Spiritualist. That Indie came, Spiritualist, that's um, right. Great. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's really wonderful for me to hear. And as I've been reading your books through the years, you know, they've been very inspirational. And uh, and it, the beautiful thing is the words connect at a, at a place of the heart, you know. And and that yeah. I believe is where our true teachings stem from. That you know, we all connect in this place so it's really wonderful that that you know it, it's cross-generational the heart's a heart you know and, and uh, so uh, it's just well great to hear you say that thank you so you know Matthew in close my last question and then I will give you the floor if there's anything I didn't cover that you would like to discuss because your book it it, it touches on so many things that we haven't had a chance to get into the divine feminine shamanism I mean black elk it it, it, it really runs the gamut and it's I can't encourage viewers enough to to pick it up and read it but the last thing I wanted to make sure I asked you was what advice would you give for this younger generation of spiritual seekers of truth seekers you know whether they're new to the path or not what uh, what what are some words of advice or wisdom you would like to leave them with hmm well, to listen deeply, listen to your call. You know, everyone's here for a purpose, and not just as individuals, but as communities and even a generation. It's so clear that we're not living in ordinary times. It's not time for business as usual, education as usual, religion as usual. Um, and so you want to listen to your call. Everyone does have a call. And um, what are the values that re you really cherish? What is it you really want to do, as Mary Oliver says, with your one precious and wild life? Uh, and don't don't necessarily adopt the the priorities of uh, of the of the previous generation. Uh, things are not as they were, and our awareness is expanding. Uh, 
the awareness both of our shadow and the evil we're capable of as a species, but also the awareness of spiritual practice and um, consciousness and the expansion, potential expansion of our our uh, species in terms of its next evolutionary steps. I would also say don't be over-attracted by what uh, Larry Dossie calls G-Wiz technologies. Uh, I love that little endorsement he gave me for my book. He said, you know, the humanity will not be saved by more G-Wiz technologies, um, but by going deeper into the psycho-spiritual potential of our species. Because it's true, I mean, uh, the appearance of the Internet and all this, it seems to me, has not... Um, rendered war less uh, present in our midst. You know, uh, if anything, it's made it more visible. We can all go on the Internet. And um, so we should be feeling that. It's it's jarring. Mm -hmm. So we have to go deeper into uh, what humans are and what's holding us back from our real potential as as uh, lovers and warriors of, of um of justice, eco justice, social justice, economic justice, uh, gender justice. Um, so we're called both to be mystics and warriors, or mystics and prophets, and that's what I I like so much about Eckhart that he not only wrote about it with depth and passion, he lived it. He walked his talk, and um, uh, we need to walk our talk too. And that you know what looks like a dark thing, say. Um, uh, you had to drop out of school because you can't afford it anymore, or you can't get a full-time job. What I've learned from a lot of young people um, are not living alone anymore because they, they can't afford to, but they're living in communities. And what happens is, while the, while the initial purpose for that may be economic survival, what really happens is a whole new set of values arises when you're living in a community. And you rediscover the value of conviviality, of conversation, of meals together, of growing food. You have more time because you only have a half-time job. Uh, you can grow food. You can do spiritual practice. You can do political organizing. And it's a different world because you're literally – moving more and more distant from those values, uh, so-called, of a culture that has been uncritical of itself mm -hmm. and that is putting people through an educational system that, that doesn't deal with values as such. So, um, you know, what, what seems like a dark night, and I think we are in a dark night of the soul as a species, is in fact a very special time. The mystics tell us it's a time for learning the deeper, the deeper most important questions mm -hmm. of wisdom and of compassion, and why are we here? What do we have to give back? And um, so I would just encourage uh, young people on those lines, and I'd also articulate with them that fun is a virtue. Fun is a value. And I think that's kind of built into a lot of young people's uh, journeys today, that it's not just about what are you going to do when you're 65 and want to retire. It's about the path itself uh, deserves to have beauty and joy and fun along along the way. And uh, we have to learn to trust. And uh, I think something is afoot uh, globally. Uh, and I think Gaia is inspiring a lot of young people to be generous, to ask deeper questions, and um, and even to have fun along the way of, uh, of being generous. I love that. And giving. So well said. You know, Matthew, I 
that's all the questions I had. I mean, I could sit here for hours with you and go on and on about your work, but is there anything from the book that I didn't cover that you would like to 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 finish up with um, any particular chapter that meant a lot to you or that you think would be valuable for our viewers to hear about or anything in general you'd like to leave us with? Well, I do think um, you mentioned the chapter on shamanism. Uh, Thomas Berry, who is a real prophet, deceased now, uh, especially around the ecological issues, he used to say, we, we need fewer priests, though he was a priest, we need fewer priests, fewer professors, and more shamans. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And I think a lot of young people today are being bitten by shamanism, if you will. I think there is a, an attraction there. I think it's part of Gaia kind of asserting herself. And so to find that um, that Meister Eckhart also has a lot in common with shamans, and also that many uh, scholars of the New Testament see Jesus as shamanistic in many of the stories there too, I think that's important again to realize that shamanism, as it returns, you know, uh, uh, has a deep, a deep uh, practice. And of course, when you step back and see the history of our species, uh, for most of our existence, our religion was shamanistic, and um, and we survived through some really rough times. <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot to learn because it. It heals this horrible rift we have between nature and human nature, uh, between nature and us, as if we're separate. And obviously, we have to get that squared away if we're going to be warriors on behalf of Mother Earth. We have to rediscover the sacredness of nature and and the, the, the meaning of, of sacredness and, and, and gratitude and reverence all of which comes through those profound relationships with nature, including our own, including our own bodies, and to be uh, caring of our bodies. And, and that would mean resisting corporate food uh, 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 invasions of our bodies and so forth. I mean, anything like that will have political, economic ramifications. And... Uh, it's a wonderful thing, the number of young people I meet who are into nutrition and into yoga and into honoring their bodies. And um, the human body is a very special accomplishment of the universe and of, of this planet. And uh, why would we take it for granted unless we had no spiritual sense whatsoever? Mm. So um, I had a dream years ago, and I'll end with this. Um, and in the dream, it said, there's nothing wrong with human species today except one thing. Which I think is stunning. You know, I could write a hundred things that are wrong with human species. <laughs> one thing. Wow, here's a shortcut. What is that? <laughs> you've lost the sense of the sacred. That's what the dream said. The one thing wrong with us, you've lost the sense of the sacred. And that's what I think um, the new cosmology, I think our, our spiritual traditions are here to teach us. We have to travel much lighter with backpacks and not and not basilicas on our back. Uh, uh, we have to learn what it means to be a mystic and a warrior or a prophet and and get into it, roll up our sleeves and, and go to work. And that's the definition of hope, according to David Orr. Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't have asked for a better ending. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time, Matthew. It has been a real pleasure. Uh, the name of the book, again, is Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times. You can 
visit Matthew Fox online at matthewfox.org. And just quickly, do do you have any workshops or teachings coming up, Matthew, or any what what what's on the horizon for you? Uh, yeah, uh, Friday I go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I'll be there uh, Friday and Saturday, um, lecture and workshop, and. Um, what else? Well, I suppose I'd have to go to my webpage and see okay. the schedule there. Sure. But uh, I know there's more coming up, too. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So anyone that's viewing, please connect with Matthew again at MatthewFox.org and, uh, and read his books if you haven't. It will change your life. So, Matthew, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And I'm glad you have a program like this. I encourage you. Get the word out. I will. Alternative media. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.